Well, he's risen, church. As Susan mentioned, the Easter eggs all through the Bible. Good call. Um, because right from the book of Genesis, there are all of these signs and pictures and prophecies and glorious reimaginings of what we celebrate today. The Messiah who would come, the conquering king who would conquer death. And it all culminates on Easter Sunday, uh, this exciting day that we're enjoying together. And uh, our Christian faith brings with it lots of benefits that we experience. You can experience hope. You can experience peace. We experience strength and enabling in times of sorrow. We, we, we experience God's grace in so many ways. We have the gift of prayer, whereby through prayer we experience you know, answers and seeing God's provision and His faithfulness. Uh, even when He answers our prayers in ways we wouldn't expect, we look back to the corridors of our history and we see the faithfulness of God. There's all these experiences about the Christian faith. But the foundation of Christian faith is not our experience. The foundation of our Christian faith, the hinge on everything uh, which, which uh, our faith swings, um, is this resurrection. A moment that we can point to in human history. A moment in human history where we can point and say, this is why I believe. This empty tomb on the third day, the resurrection. And so we're going to take some time this morning and celebrate this good news together. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter, and he came to the tomb first. And he stood stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside of the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lay. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, and she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him, And she said, Rabboni, which is to say, my teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to the Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the other disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And then the same day at evening, 
being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples were glad, they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Now, there is no better news than this. There is no better news than the fragility of this life not being all that there is. And we celebrate it today. And before we do, um, focus on this conquering king. For the benefit of those of you who've been on a bit of a journey with us, exploring Christian faith, whether you're here or you're watching online, I just want to very, very briefly mention two things. Uh, Before we get to the conquering king, I want to get you to just think a little bit about the cause of the cosmos and the course of history. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this at all, so if you'd like to dialogue further, you have my contact information on the website, I'll have a coffee with you and we can talk a lot about it. But I just want you to think about this because I know that believing a man rises from death seems like a big leap. But I would invite you to consider that what you, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from death and you don't believe in the God of the cosmos and you believe that the cause of the cosmos was that there was nothing and then for no reason whatsoever from the state of lifelessness there was an explosion which brought life you already believe in life from lifelessness It's just you you don't have a cause for the cosmos. You don't have a cause. You just say, well, you know, through an innumerable amount of time, this thing that occurred for no reason, this state of lifelessness, there was an explosion. And then from the the, 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 the debris that was also lifeless came all of life. That's what you believe. You already believe that all life came from lifelessness, but you have no rhyme or reason for why it occurred or what's behind the cause of all life. And I'm just going to invite you to consider that believing in this conquering king, this Jesus, believing in the God and the creator of all things, will perhaps be helpful in taking you on a journey to consider that there is actually a cause behind the cosmos. Lots more to say there. I'm not even going to talk about it any further, but I'd love to have a coffee with you and dialogue about that more. I just need you to realize that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you already believe in what it, in what it implies. You believe that all life came from life to lifelessness. The second thing is that after the cause of the cosmos is the course of history. And if Christ is not the king, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, if uh, he's not this conquering king over death, and he's really... Just a no-name, poor carpenter for some backwater town in the Middle East someplace that nobody would have heard of if it weren't for Jesus Christ putting Bethlehem on the map. Um, You've got to ask yourself the question as you look through the course of human history, how this no-name guy who was crucified, lynched, really, this ancient form of execution on this Roman cross, like a common criminal, looks like a total fraud, claims to be God, and then he cries up from the cross that God is forsaking him, just looks like a total fraud. You've got to ask yourself, as a reasonable person, 
how this person became the central figure in human history. How Jesus Christ is and will always be the central figure in all of humanity. How this man, if he's not the conquering king who rose from the grave, if there were not hundreds of witnesses who saw him, how it was that there are now billions of worshipers across all cultures spanning the globe, Surely these billions of worshipers aren't all gullible fools. How did this global movement happen if he's not the king, if he is this legendary hipster who just ate with poor people? How does this happen? When you look at the history, and again, this is the last thing I'm going to say. I'm not going to talk more about this because this morning we're just going to celebrate this conquering king. The last thing I'm going to say is if you were writing a legend... But you have to, in the words of C.S. Lewis, if he's not the Lord, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic. or if it's, it's a legend. But if this is just like some legend where we're just supposed to pull, you know, good truths from and just be good moral people. Like if that's all it was, you've got to ask yourself the question of why anybody would have ever believed this. Why anybody would ever worship. Because historically speaking, what should have happened was it should have just been laughed out of Rome. Because the, we just read the text, the people who are supposed to be his front runners, they're all hiding. Uh, they're not bold. They're not brave. It's not Jesus 11 planning a huge heist. It's Jesus 11 hiding for their lives. And we have it right here in the text that the first eyewitnesses, the first evangelists are women. And I, I can't underscore enough how important this is. You know, I mean, it's 2021 and we're still fighting uh, for the e- equal dignity education, right, value, pay scales, like we're still in this conversation around um, validating and giving proper dignity to women. And it's 2021. In the ancient world, the, the, the testimony of a woman was useless in court. The Babylonian Talmud, this is a direct quote, says, better that the words of the law be burnt than be in the hands of a woman. Celsius said, the philosopher in the second century, he said, You cannot believe the accounts of the resurrection because the witnesses are women and women are hysterical. That's a direct quote. You can research that. Okay, so this is how they viewed it. But all four gospel writers are like, this is the story and we're sticking to it. If you're just writing a legend, if you're making stuff up, if you're trying to start a movement, this isn't how you do it. So I want to invite those of you who have been in this journey with us, either here or online, to consider the cause of the cosmos and consider the reason for the course of history is that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He is the conquering king. And now let's just focus on him and celebrate for the rest of the morning together. Jesus Christ is conquering king. Verse 1 tells us that Mary goes to the tomb on the very first day of the week. This is like a glorious theological callback to the creation. I just want to show you a couple Easter eggs this morning on how good this is on what on, on God's the Lord of creation being the Lord of recreation. This all happens on the first day of the week. Well, in the creation account, on the sixth day, God creates man. Sixth day of Holy Week, Pilate says, looks at Jesus and says, there's the man. Seventh day of creation, God rests from all his creative work. Seventh day of Holy Week, the dead body of Jesus rests from all of his redemptive work. Seventh day of creation, God says, it's finished. It's, it's a celebration. It's all good. On the cross, Christ the King, it is finished. 
Then on the first day of the week, you've got this glorious picture of this new light of a new day, the dawning of a new creation. Verse 22, we just read it. What does Jesus do? This glorious picture, this image, this action, this symbol, beyond a symbol, but this actual uniting himself by the power of the Spirit, by his disciples as they witness the resurrected body of Jesus. What does he do? He breathes on them. In the creation, in Genesis, God breathes and creates life. After the resurrection, Jesus breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive new life. The creator God is the redeeming God. This amazing and glorious picture. The reason that we celebrate today. This, this resurrection event, it's inauguration. It's this beautiful picture teaching us that our faith is not an escape from the material world. That's not where this is going. It's not an escape from the material world. It is the restoration of the material world. That's what the resurrected body of Jesus points to. In verse 12, the apostle describes what Mary sees. And Mary is looking into, into the tomb. And she sees the, the place where the body of Jesus lay. And we get more amazing Old Testament Easter eggs here. Because the place where the body of Jesus was is this stone slab. And she sees angels at the, front, at the head and at the foot of the stone slab. And there where the body of Jesus was is the, is the stains of the blood on the stone slab. And in the Old Testament, you've got this thing in the, where they would go and worship in the temple called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was a box the, the, the length of a man. And there were angels carved at the head and the foot of the mercy seat. And the angels, those cherubs, they were carved looking down in wonder. And where the gaze of the angels looked in wonder was where the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. This picture of redemption and salvation and God's grace, this picture of, this picture of substitution, where of course the blood of the, goals, the bulls and the goats never forgave anybody's sin. All of their sin was being passed over to Christ, the perfect sacrifice who would forgive sin. And here is Mary, and she's looking at the fulfillment of all scripture. She's looking at the fulfillment of the mercy seat. She's looking at this picture that has been prophesied and foreshadowed and forecasted throughout the entire Old Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, as you read through the Bible, you discover it is not a tall tale about a cosmic ogre who's out for blood. We find that it is an epic love story about a God who so loves his wayward children. He pays the way for our ransom by shedding his own blood. And then when you look in verse 15, we see that Jesus appears to Mary. She turns around and she sees him, and he appears to her in a garden. And that's interesting. That should remind you of something. And she thinks he's the one in charge of the garden. Well, that's interesting. That should make you think of something. See, the first Adam brought damnation into the world by a tree in a garden. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, redeems us all on a tree and then confirms our redemption by rising from the grave in a garden. In the book of Genesis, we find that the Father created life to be centered and enjoyed around him in a garden. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus Christ, the conquering king, restores this relationship with God. And the proof of this is in the empty tomb in the garden. And spoiler alert, you get to the book of Revelation, and after the resurrection, we enjoy life in the restored earth with God in a garden city. The Bible goes from garden 
to Garden Tomb to Garden City. This is not by accident. The Bible is not one guy sitting down writing an epic story and going, I'm going to weave this all together. It's 66 books. It's 40 authors. It comes together, conservatively, in 1,500 years. You can't Hail Mary a story you're writing into the future and hope that somebody from some other time and in place picks up the narrative and continues it for 1,500 years. Christ the conquering king, the fulfillment of all scripture. Christ the conquering king, the reason for our amazing and uh, wonderful celebration today on this Easter Sunday, the high point of the church calendar. Man, revel in this church. Be blown away by it. Yes, of course, the world that we live in is, you know, tainted and riddled and stained with sorrow and injustice and pain and death. And that's because the sin-ridden old creation is still rumbling on. But Jesus Christ has come to interrupt the trajectory of the decay of the old creation. The resurrection is satisfying and certain physical sign that this new creation has come in Christ. That God is going to deal with all of the sorrow. And he's going to deal with the pain and the darkness. We don't need explanations for the darkness. We need a conquering king to overcome the darkness. And praise God, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. He is going to restore and rescue the world. When, you know, to borrow from uh, one of the professors at um, Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, Kim Brittlebarger. Think about the kinds of miracles Jesus did. Think about the kinds of healings that Jesus did and what those could possibly be pointing to. The physical healings were never about the healings in themselves because, of course, all the people that Jesus healed died. So the point can't be physical healing. They've got to be pointing to something bigger. Let's think about the kinds of miracles that Jesus did. He opened the eyes of the blind. Why? This is a miracle that shows us that God opens our eyes so that we can see him. See his work, see his grace, see his love. Jesus was opening the ears of the deaf. Why was he doing that? So that we could hear God's word, hear his gospel, hear his love, hear his grace, hear the wisdom of his law and let it guide our lives. Jesus Christ healed the lame. Why was he going around doing this? He healed the lame so that we could, to show us we can get up and follow Jesus. That we can get up and bend our knee to the king and live in glorious freedom. All of these healings that Jesus does, these amazing pictures. Why does Jesus heal diseases that made people unclean? Why did Jesus go around touching the unclean? Because they're all pointing to this redemption. They're all pointing to Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ, the conquering king, the one who makes the unclean clean. The reason for our celebration you know, all of these miracles that Jesus did, they weren't just proof of the divinity of Jesus. They're foreshadowing what's coming in the resurrection of Jesus. They're foreshadowing what is going to be realized fully in the return of Christ the King. You know, as many various authors have expressed, us Christians, we're, we're Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And so there is this tremendous sense of hope and joy that we enjoy just as Jesus, in verse 5, he calls Mary to himself and he silences her fear with hope and peace. <coughs> her Redeemer lives. He comes to you and he comes to me and he calls us to himself continually to silence our fear with hope and peace. 
Our Redeemer lives. The light that shone in the darkness at creation is continually shining into the darkness of our hearts, bringing recreation. This Creator God, He is the redeeming God. And just like a criminal walks out of the prison doors after they have served their sentence, Jesus Christ walks out of the tomb after He served our sentence. After He paid for our crimes. The empty tomb. The price has been paid. This this radical picture on the cross, Jesus Christ cries, it is finished, paid in full. And three days later, the empty tomb is like his father, stamping across all of human history in a way that cannot be missed, paid in full. To borrow from Tolkien, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply one more great story pointing to some underlying reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all other resurrection narratives point. And this begs the question, but if this temporary and fragile life of ours is not all that there is, how then do we live, church? We live as Easter people in the Good Friday world with love and patience and and willing to sacrifice and lay our lives down. Our lives can be cross-shaped because we don't have to fight tooth and nail. For the me first life, we don't need everything to orient around and serve our personal freedoms, our needs, our desires. We are free to love and to serve, to lay our lives down, inconvenience ourselves for others. This is what the cross empowers us to be able to do. Being free to love the people who are sitting around you in these seats today, in this community. Make sacrifices so that can happen. And not only in this community, but of course that we would bring our gifts to bear uh, to be a blessing to the greater KW community. You know, this resurrection we're celebrating this morning, this is not some mental crutch that gets us through the tough times in our lives. This gospel is a defibrillator. It's a defibrillator that raises us to a new way of life. The life-changing power of the resurrection. The good news of the gospel, what this means is there is no hardship or trial or sorrow that can destroy you because the only thing that could have destroyed you was destroyed at the cross by the conquering king. He's defeated death in the grave. United to Christ, you and I have no fear of the grave. And so now we live in this new, in this new light from the tremendous joy that comes from this, that there's no sting because of the grave. You know, if Jesus Christ is not Lord, death is Lord. I'm not being morbid. I'm being a realist. You can tell me, well, my life is about family and friends and love and it's about career and being a good person and making a difference in the city and leaving the world better than it was when you, after you leave it than when you came into it. Great, wonderful. But a thousand years from now, death is Lord. Even if you change the world in the way that, you know, no other human being has ever changed it, let's just say that you do that. 10,000 years from now, Death is still Lord. Who's to say that everything that you make your life about isn't going to get erased one, two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty generations from now? Who's to say that everything that you say is important in life and the reason we get up in the morning is something that for, forevermore, every other succeeding generation is going to say, yeah, we agree, we're going to uphold that value. If Jesus Christ is not Lord, death is Lord. And the only way to have joy is to not think about what I'm saying right now. But if you're a tried and true atheist, you're amening what I'm saying right now. Because tried and true atheism understands the truth of what I'm saying right now. 
which is that if the sun burns out, like all other suns burn out, then the only way you have joy is one little distraction to the next. Basically, it's like, don't think about where this is all headed, and then you can be happy for the moment. What I am telling you, church, what I am telling you, those of you who have not yet placed your faith in Christ, is that Resurrection Sunday, there is no better news than Christ being Lord, because it means that death is not Lord. It means that in the end, there is, there is the restoration of all things and, and the world that we desire to live in that seems to be evading us. Because despite all the love, the joy, the generosity, and the goodness that is on planet Earth, there's all of these dark and dis- disgusting and terrible and horrific things that are just constantly sort of contending with the goodness. And we want the end of that paradox. And what I'm saying is the resurrection is the end of the paradox. Praise God. This is what it means. The resurrection is your assurance that in the end, Joy will come from all your tears. Strength will be the end of all of, uh, at the end of all of your weakness. All of your feelings of abandonment and fear and worry end in rescue. All of your pain and grief and darkness and sadness and sorrow, the end of all of that is healing and life. It's resurrection. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, heaven once attained will work backwards and turn every agony into glory. That's the teleology of your life. That's where this is all headed. The resurrection was just as inconceivable the day that it happened as it is today. It was just as hard for everybody to grasp the day that it happened as it is today. But the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day will quicken our hearts and our minds to believe it today, to live in light of it today. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.